why don't you come on in, grab a seat. We will be getting started. Uh, super fun to have uh, our kids come up and sing. My daughter was the one dancing in the back, and so wasn't exactly sure where that was going. Always the PK, right? Um, but it's, uh, we, have, we have a lot of children here, and that's, that's exciting to see. Uh, there's a lot of people that just serve and pour into our children's ministry that we're just so grateful for. Um, as as uh, we want to create an environment for them uh, that is fun, that is safe, that teaches them about uh, God's love and, uh, and, and, and who Jesus is. And so um, always just really excited about what's going on with our kids' ministry. If you want to open up to 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, that's where we're going to start today. I want to just, I'll, I'll open up with this passage and we'll go from there. 1 Kings 19.1 says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Basically a death threat. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. We're in a, a series right now called Campfire Stories, and as we kind of uh, settle down for summer and people take off and go different directions, one of the things that we wanted to just jump into the Old Testament and look at a bunch of these kind of wild and epic and obscure stories and ask questions like, why is this in the Bible, and what do we do with it, and how does this form us to be a certain kind of people? And... The campfire story that we come across today is probably the kind of story that you would hear at a campfire because it is mysterious and epic and there's all sorts of things happening. And as we open up in this passage, what we find is there's a couple of characters, Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. And if we were to tell this as a story, the story would go that sometime around the 9th century BC, uh, God's kingdom of Israel gets divided into the north and the south, and so Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south, and the northern kingdom's ruled by this king named Omri. And you can kind of remember him because it sounds like Omri. He's an Omri king. And uh, he wasn't a good king. Um, he wasn't necessarily a mad king, just not the best king. Right next to their country is this uh, place, this coastal land on the Mediterranean, ruled by the Phoenicians. Being from Phoenix, I love that name. These are the original Phoenicians, though. And they were a very wealthy people. Uh, they, they became wealthy from trading kind of all up and down the Mediterranean. And if you're Israel and you're right next door to them, you're looking over them and you see their wealth and their accumulation. And it's hard not to be envious. And it's hard not to think, like, what do they have going for them that we don't have going for us? Whatever they're doing, we kind of want in on that. But the Phoenicians would attribute their wealth to this god that they followed called Baal or Baal. Or I don't know. I don't speak Phoenician. But we call it Baal. We'll say Baal for... Uh, for our purposes today. And so King Omri decided to build an alliance with the Phoenicians, so he had arranged a marriage for his son, Ahab, to marry the Phoenician princess named Jezebel. So if you find out you're getting to marry a Phoenician princess, that would be pretty exciting, you would think, right? Her name's Jezebel. Uh, I've got two daughters. Um, they love... Uh, they love the movie Frozen, right? Our youngest one that was up here dancing dresses up like Anna all the time, and, uh, and they love little, you know, the princess story. Um, there's a lot of like popular names that we name 
women after, we name our girls after princesses, like, like Anna, and who's the other one from Frozen? Elsa, Elsa yes, Anastasia, these are great. You never find a, uh, you never, what was it? Oh, okay. <laughs> Phoenician princess named Jezebel. We don't have a lot of young girls running around with Jezebel's name. We name a lot of girls after biblical characters. So there's Hannah, there's Ruth, there's Esther. There aren't any girls named Jezebel. Why is that? Well, Jezebel was trouble. <laughs> she was trouble. And Ahab marries Jezebel, and Jezebel is, uh, is all in on this worship of Baal. And what we find is that in Israel, there's kind of this like syncretism happening where they're like, we can kind of worship our God, but then we kind of want to take some from this God over here because that's, the, that's where like... They're making rich, and what we find is that Baal is the god of the rain. He makes the rain fall. He's the god of fertility. He's the god of the crops. And, and Jezebel is all in on Baal, and she comes over to Israel and starts systematically kind of wiping out like the prophets and priesthood of Yahweh. She's, she's evil. She's, she's murdering people who disagree with her. And there's this prophet named Elijah who shows up. And if you know anything about Elijah, what you'll find is that he is maybe one of the most popular prophets in all of the Old Testament. And looking back at it now, we see Elijah and we think this is someone, it seems like he almost has like, like superhero powers. Some of the stories that come from Elijah and his interaction with people are just amazing. And in fact, when Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament, people said, are you, is this, is this Elijah. And they weren't saying that to diminish who they, Jesus was. They're trying to figure out who Jesus was. But they're pointing back to like the hero in their story in the Old Testament. And Elijah shows up and he looks at what Jezebel's doing and how she's systematically killing these people and how Israel starts going after these idols, the, the, the worship of, of, of hoping if I put my hope and my faith in this thing, then it's going to deliver for me. And there's these destructive practices that they step into. And Elijah decides to do something about it. And at first what he says is, this is the God of the rain. This is where you're putting all of your hope, and it's leading you to all these destructive practices. Well, here's what's going to happen. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. And this God of the rain isn't going to be able to do anything about it. And Elijah kind of goes into hiding, and he emerges again. And Ahab's looking for him. And Ahab sees Elijah, and he goes, oh, here's the one that's causing all the trouble. So all the trouble that we have now because it's not raining and it's destroyed our economy, it's Elijah's fault. Not this wife that I've brought into the picture who worships the God of the rain, but it's Elijah's fault. Blames everything on Elijah, and Elijah says, well, let's have a little showdown and see whose God is really God. And so he says, why don't you bring all the prophets of Baal and come to this place called Mount Carmel, and I'll show up, and we'll have a little contest to see whose God is real. And if you know this story, the prophets show up. They, get, they both get a cow. Remember, this is 2,500 years ago, it was a very violent culture, a very different culture than today. They both have this cow that they're getting ready to sacrifice, a bull, and they basically say, here's what we'll do. We'll sacrifice, and then we'll call out to both of our gods, and the god that responds with fire is the real god. And he goes, you guys can go first. And Mount Carmel is this place where the Baal worship's happening. It's close to the Phoenician land. The prophets show up, there's 450 of them. They set up the sacrifice and they start calling out to Baal to bring down fire on the sacrifice. And they all morning crying out to, to, to Baal and nothing happens. And Elijah's sitting there surrounded by these 400 prophets and he starts to say like, well, maybe Baal's busy. 
Maybe he's on a journey somewhere, or, or maybe he's in the kind of like the innuendo is maybe he's in the bathroom. You just got to shout louder because he's busy right now. And he starts to kind of like poke at them. But then something tragic happens. These, these prophets of Baal start to not only like dance and call out to Baal, they start to actually cut themselves and they start doing these sacrifices and self-mutilating and pouring out their blood, trying to get this idol's attention, which always happens with our idols. It always demands more of us and never delivers. There's something else going on here where they're, they're pouring out, they're harming themselves, trying to get the attention to appease the gods so that he would send the fire. And it's tragic. Then finally, at the end of the day, Elijah, it's his turn to go. And he goes and he, he rebuilds the altar of the Lord that's been destroyed. And he brings out 12 stones, which if you remember, when they entered into the promised land, they had this altar of 12 stones and it was a memorial. And he puts that around the altar and he says, I'm about to call out to God to send fire. And just so you know that this isn't a trick, I'll let you go fill up buckets, jars of water and pour it all over the sacrifice so you know that I haven't done a trick. They do that. And he calls out to God. And it says that fire erupts, consumes the sacrifice, consumes all of the water that's in the trench around the sacrifice. Everyone freaks out. This miraculous thing happens. And they realize that Yahweh is the true God. Right after that, the rain comes. And the God who has provided for his people throughout this whole story, hears them crying out for rain, shows up and delivers. This unbelievable story that is, it's hard to understand, it's hard to wrap our minds around, where God intervenes and does something. And it's changing for everyone. And if you're Elijah, you know, I, I wonder if you're him and, and you just have called down fire, you're thinking, like, I could do anything right now, right? Like, what in the world just happened? Like, I, I was able to summon the fire of God. You think that he would be super high. You think that he would be uh, super confident, and then this passage that I just opened up, here's what happens. Jezebel's not there. She doesn't see what happens. And Ahab goes and tells her all the things that Elijah just did. I can't imagine how that conversation would go. We know Ahab's kind of like this passive guy, not super confident. Jezebel's super strong. And he has this conversation with her where he's trying to explain, well, you know what? You know, maybe Bill's not the right guy. What? <laughs> Screaming at him. And she's, she's not convinced. And she says, Elijah is going to die for this. I'm going to go get him, and he's going to be dead. And what we find is that Elijah gets word that a Jezebel is not happy, that it hasn't really changed anything. And this prophet of God that just called down fire runs, takes off in fear. He bolts. He gets out of town. And my first thought is thinking, like, I would like to think that I would be different if I just went through an experience, like the, the showdown on Mount Carmel, than what Elijah would do. Like, it would be different if I was in that situation. Like, not, I, I fear nothing now. But Elijah, this man of great faith, is scared for his life, and he runs. It says that he takes off, runs for his life. Picking up in verse 3, when he came to Beersheba and Judah the southern kingdom, he left his servant there. So at first he takes off and he's not by himself, but then he goes off by himself while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat under it and prayed that he might die. And here's the words that he says. I've had enough, Lord. 
take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lays down under a bush and falls asleep. It's pretty, pretty dark words. I've had enough. I'm done. Take my life. These are the words, these are the words of a mental breakdown. These are the words of darkness. These are the words of someone that has given up. After this amazing miracle happens, after he sees God show up miraculously, so quickly, he's gone into this state of depression. The work that I've been doing is not making a difference. He takes off, he retreats, and he's in despair. Um, I, I feel like I can resonate with these words where I say words like this, maybe not to this extreme, um, but I, I tend to be very cynical. I th- struggle with darkness. I'm an external processor, so Marcy always hears it. Um, and it's not fun for her, but this is how I just always assume the worst is going on in life. I always can see the negative, and I just fixate. And wh- here's what I found. There's, there's a couple different stages, I think, of this, of this mental breakdown. There's disappointment. And maybe you've experienced disappointment recently. Maybe you're experiencing disappointment right now. Disappointment happens where, and I think it's a good thing because it means that you care about something. You have expectations for something, and then you've been let down, you've been disappointed. And we all experience disappointment. And if you don't want to be disappointed, don't care about anything. Don't give your heart to anything. Don't expect anything from anybody, and you avoid disappointment. But if you're a kind of person that cares, you're going to experience disappointment. We experience it every day, every week, throughout our life. But then there's another thing that happens. There's discouragement. And discouragement is what happens when disappointment camps out. Discouragement, where disappointment's kind of like circumstantial comes and goes, discouragement's like seasonal. And I've found like in my life I've had seasons of discouragement where all of a sudden the disappointment camps out for a while. And you become very discouraged. Sometimes it's like a a month thing, sometimes it's a three-month thing. It could, it could be something that lasts for years. Maybe it's like a two-year, a three-year just experience of discouragement. This disappointment has ca- camped out in my life, and it's taken roots inside of me. I had a, a mentor and friend one time talking to me about my discouragement, and he said, sometimes we're discouraged because we have a reason to be discouraged. And there was something very freeing about that. Yes, life is challenging. It's difficult. And this kind of thing can camp out inside of you. And it's a seasonal experience. And then there's something that is even worse when, when discouragement camps out inside of you and, and all you're experiencing is like this resistance or, or trials and it just is like bogging you down. You slip into this third word that also starts with a D and it's this word despair. And the language of despair is this. Why should I even try? anymore? Why even fight? Why even try to fix this? Why even live? Despair is hopelessness. There is no future. I'm done. And right here with Elijah, he's using these words after everything that he's been doing, trying to awaken his people, trying to let them know that God is God, and this thing that you're pursuing is only going to lead to your destruction. And he's talking, he's talking, and he finally gets to this point where he just says, I am 
done, hopeless in despair. This is great darkness. And it says that he goes to sleep. And I think what's interesting is when we think about this idea of despair, it's something that's deeper than discouragement. When discouragement camps out in our life, when we slip into this thing of despair, what we have here is one of the heroes of the faith, Elijah, one of the most popular names in Scripture, and he's experiencing it. And I think about like my life and the things that I go through and the discouragement, and I always feel so bad when I go through that. Like, gosh, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't be experiencing this. But when we have this story here in 1 Kings, I think what it tells us is that someone even with as great as faith as Elijah, who calls down fire from heaven, if he can go through a season like this, an experience like this, we should realize that we're all susceptible to it. The man of God, the prophet chosen to be the mouthpiece of God, goes through this despair. And in a strange way, there's something that brings me peace about that. And yet there's something else that happens here is as this man of God goes through this experience where he's completely hopeless about his circumstances, we also get to find out how does God deal with his people when they go through this experience. And this story will reveal something to us about what God is like as he interacts with Elijah. And here's what happens. It says, Verse 5, then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Elijah wakes up. Says that he looks around in verse 6, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. He ate and he drank. The angel Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, for your journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank again. When he goes taking off on his own into the wilderness and he's experiencing this disappointment that's camped out, that's been discouragement that turns into hopeless despair, God meets them there. And here's what we find out about God. I'm thinking God's going to say, like, look what I just did for you. This huge miracle. I just showed up. I just intervened. I just, I just give you fire from heaven. You think that he's going to give him a speech. But what God gives Elijah is lunch. He feeds him. And what we find is that God... God refreshes Elijah in the midst of his despair. He refreshes him. He meets him. This angel shows up, touches him, and says, oh, there's lunch here. Eat. Revive. Rejuvenate. There's something refreshing about the presence of God in the midst of despair for Elijah. He gives him bread. He gives him bread. I remember my wife and I were going through a really difficult season, which I would say was discouragement. Probably the closest I've felt to being in despair and hopeless 
It was a time when our son Micah was in hospital. He had salmonella typhi. Doctors were trying to figure out what it was. He's in the hospital for like four or five nights. And we're trying to figure it out. And we're just completely bogged down by the weight and the darkness of our situation. And I remember one of my friends, Adam, uh, his name's Adam, shows up at our house. Actually, I don't think he even showed up. I think he just left a gift and kind of doorbell ditched us. We found out that he had left a box of diapers at our house. And I remember thinking, like, how, how much that helped us in that moment uh, when we were under the financial stress of the medical stuff, trying to figure out our lives. We were unable to, we had another kid, we are trying to figure out how to just get groceries, and all of a sudden, Adam shows up with diapers. And it was like bread. It was just something that was so refreshing and encouraging to know that someone cared. And it wasn't just the gift that was given. It was the timing of it and the way that it met a need in our life. And here, God refreshes Elijah by giving bread. God has a way of doing this, of refreshing us. Little signs, little pieces of encouragement, little text messages that encourage us. (laughs) Whatever it is. Sometimes a loaf of bread is such a simple gift, but at the right time, it's unbelievably refreshing and life-giving. And what we find is that God desires to meet us in our lowest moments, in our darkest moments, and he encourages us there. He encourages us. God refreshes those who are despair. The story goes on to say that, strengthened by the food that he was refreshed, he traveled for 40 more days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went to a cave, and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So we find that God refreshes him, and he continues on his journey. And then he goes to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. This is where, uh, so he's basically retracing the journey that Israel goes when they leave Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and they come out to the promised land. Now he's all the way back at Mount Sinai, the place where God makes his covenant with his people. He gives them a name. He gives them a calling. And Elijah goes all the way back to this mountain. And God has this question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing? And it seems like Elijah has a speech prepared for God. And you may be like that in the midst of discouragement, too. You've got something prepared to tell God how you feel. And here's what Elijah says in verse 10. He says, Uh, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to the death of the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Are you seeing what's happening here? He goes from saying, I'm done, to saying, look at my circumstances. I'm the only one left. We're losing. I'm losing. Are you even watching? And he he laments to God. And it's almost like there's this cadence to it. It's the speech that he prepares that he says to God. And here's what I find is God interacts with Elijah. Is that he's a God that refreshes and he's also a God who listens. He allows Elijah to speak. And in fact, he initiates a conversation with Elijah where he asks him this question and then he allows Elijah to to vent. And Elijah just goes off. Here's the circumstances. Here's the story. Are you seeing what's happening right now? 
and he just laments. And God listens. If you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the New Testament, what you'll find is that this idea of burnout, meltdown, emotional breakdown happens again and again with God's people. Whether it's Moses, uh, whether it's Job, Jeremiah, uh, Hannah, First Samuel shows up at the temple. She's so distraught that they think she's drunk. You have all these people that they go through these experiences of great despair. David hiding in a cave, and they cry out to God. And over and over again, we find out that we have a God who listens to us, who hears us, who allows us to lament. And if you read through the Psalms, what we find is that God gives us a language with these Psalms where we can pray and we can cry out in our despair, we can cry out in our discouragement in the midst of all the things that are happening in our life that are going wrong. And God is a God who hears. We have a God who is a good listener and who allows us to come to him with all these problems. And he can handle it. And there's something... I think about this that is healthy. I was in a, a group of uh, pastors. It's like a counseling group that we'd meet like one Friday every month. And we're going through like this thing called the Bowen Families uh, System. If you're a psychologist, you might know what that is. And we're talking about like how dysfunctional families, a few things that they do that makes them dysfunctional is they don't, they don't feel anything. They're not allowed to feel emotions. They don't express their emotions. They don't communicate either. And so they, they kind of bog things down. They internalize. They don't let them out. And they blame other people. Um, They blame each other for their problems. But here's what we find when God listens and allows us to speak and voice our emotions and opinions is that something healthy happens. And the healthy families are able to communicate. They're able to express their emotions. They don't hide things from each other. And then in the family of God, we have this father who listens to us and encourages us to come to him with our, our problems. Elijah laments, and God listens. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So go out of the cave, and I'm coming, and my presence is coming, and you're going to experience it. So Elijah goes out, says that, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Can't imagine what this would have sounded like, looked like. This hurricane-like wind comes and it shatters rocks. It's so powerful. But it says, the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. The earth shakes. But it says that the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. And it says, when Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And God meets him with this whisper. A couple things happening here that I wonder, like, what in the world was going on? I mean, there's all these, you know, huge events with nature, like this big storm, this earthquake, this fire. And it's almost like God's saying, these are circumstances that create a lot of noise, but they don't capture my essence. And his presence is captured in this this whisper where he talks to Elijah. Our men's group, one of the men's groups going through uh, a book called Whisper by Mark Batterson. It's all about how God speaks. 
And there's something unique about the whisper of God. It's the breath of God, the spirit of God. It's what poured into the dust that created Adam. It's what calmed the storm when Jesus was on the lake. There's something about a whisper that is significant. Batterson says in this book, here's what's, what, like, what, what whispers do. When someone's whispering to you, when someone's whispering, you have to lean in to hear it. You have to get close to hear it. Batterson talks about how his young daughter would come to him with a secret and confide in him and whisper. A whisper requires closeness and intimacy. And so when we hear God speak, we hear when we are close and intimate with him. And for us, we want to hear what he wants to say. God wants to be close to us. And in that whisper, the quietness of that moment, Elijah hears from God. This God who refreshes in the midst of despair, this God who listens, is a God who speaks in a very intimate and close way to us. And a whisper. Think about the times in my life where I've gone through experiences uh, of discouragement and I feel like God has shown up and just whispered to me. And what I find is that these, these moments when everything finally settles down in the midst of everything that I'm going through and I slow myself down and I come into the presence of God and I lean into him, I start to hear his whisper in ways that bring life back into me. Here's some of the things that I, over my 36 years on this earth, have heard when it comes to God whispering. I've heard God say to me, I am here. I am here. I've heard God say to me, you are loved and you are my child. I've heard God whisper, the still small voice say, you are not alone. I've heard him say, the story isn't over. I've heard him say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've heard God say, I do my best work in impossible situations. I've heard God say, this will all make sense someday. I've heard God say, wait until you see what I have planned for you. And I've heard him say, I'm proud of you. I just want your heart. And I see you. When we draw close to God in the midst of the discouragement and despair of life, we hear these promises whispered to us. God sees us. God hears us. We might lament about are you, the situation that we're in. And God meets us and says, I see you, I hear you. I've heard as Christians or as followers of Jesus, we're the kind of people that remember things when we're reminded of them. God has a way of reminding us of his promises. And he's a God who whispers. And then, and then here's kind of what happens next. It says in verse 13, a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Ask him again. He responds, this is why I think it's like a speech he prepares. He says, I've, I'm very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to the death of the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And then something happens in verse 15. After God's refreshed, after God's listened, after God's whispered and reestablished intimacy with Elijah, he says to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and then anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. 
Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So all of a sudden, God directs. He gives these very specific instructions on what to do next. And I think Elijah is now in a moment where he's had this connection with God, he's been refreshed, and all of a sudden he can hear what's next for him. And God directs with these very specific instructions. I've seen your experience, and here's what we're going to do about it. And he says, oh, by the way, you think you're all by yourself. You think that you're all alone, but you're not. There's others that are in the fight with you. There's 7,000 that are still faithful. And you're going to go back to them. And you're going to do these things. And God's going to work. I'm going to work through you. Here's what I found. Oftentimes I take myself too serious. I feel like I'm, I'm so important in it. So I'll make statements like, well, no one else cares. I'm the only one working on this. I'm the only one trying. And in the midst of me taking myself too serious, I experience great disappointment and discouragement and burnout because I've placed too much importance on myself. And I think what God does right here when he meets Elijah, he tells Elijah, I'm working through you, but I'm working beyond you. This whole story isn't just about you. I'm doing a great work in this situation, and it's beyond just you. And I have this reminder that God is working through me. God does care about my situation. But what's going on here, there's a much bigger picture. There's a much bigger eternal aspect of what's happening in life. God's working through you, but he's working beyond you. It takes a lot of pressure off of you. God encourages us with these instructions and asks us to do things, but says there's more going on here just than what you think. There's more people involved. There's a bigger picture, and I'm just asking you to be faithful to the things that I've called you to. And Elijah receives this and goes back, finds the 7,000 people, and keeps living. A couple of things this story for us. In the midst of despair, in the midst of discouragement, we find that God is a God who refreshes. God is a God who listens. God is a God who whispers to us. And God is a God who guides our steps and directs us on what to do. And what I would ask is that as we receive this, we all have different things that we're dealing with right now. Some of us are in disappointment. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are flat out in despair. That we would let this God who meets with Elijah meet with us today that we would open ourselves up to the bread that gives life. We'd open ourselves up to say, God, would you just refresh me today? I need something with sustenance, and I need rest. That you would just allow God to refresh you. And maybe today that you would just take time to speak to God and say, here's my situation, and I need to vent a little bit. Trusting that God is a God who listens, who hears, who allows you to do this. That you would draw close to God today so that he can whisper into your ear. That he could remind you of the good promises that his presence is with you no matter what you're going through. And finally, that you would be open to the direction that God is leading you. That out of humility you would say, God, guide me. 
and I will respond. Let me know what to do, and I'll do it. Tim's going to come back up and close us with a time of prayer. And each week we take communion at Desert City. Uh, communion is our time of response, a time for us to, to meet with God. When we take communion, we believe it's something sacred. We take communion and it represents uh, bread, bread that gives us life. The bread represents incarnation, that, that the body of Christ, Jesus, was here on earth and his body was broken open on the cross for us. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that's shed on the cross that cleanses us. Maybe today as we come to the communion table, it's this, Lord, refresh me. Give me sustenance. Give me rest. Maybe today when you come to the table, it's you just saying, Lord, I got to get this out. And when you come to the table, he listens. Maybe it's just reconnecting to draw close to God. Intimate with him so that he can whisper into your ear. And maybe it's courage for direction that you need. As we approach the table today, I'm not sure where you're at, but we invite you to the table to connect with God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for these stories, these old stories, Lord, that take place in a different culture, in a different time, a different language. And yet there's things about them that we see are uh, a revelation of who you are in this world and how you interact with your people. As someone with the strongest faith as Elijah, Lord, could go through the darkness, the despair, the giving up, we're reminded that we can too. And today, Lord, I just ask that you would whisper to us, that you would stir something inside of our heart and soul that reminds us that you're with us, that we're not alone, and that there's hope. And that your presence would be felt, Lord, with everyone in this room. This is the giver of life, the one who provides. So we come to you today, Lord. We ask that you would meet us in our circumstances. And it's in your son's name we pray.